0: Look, I need you to do me a favor. If you like my content, share it with the people close to you. It helps this channel tremendously in a way you just wouldn't believe.
1: But it really is hard to pinpoint an African culture. In Ethiopian culture, in fact, you know, you don't take your husband's name.
0: But what does it seem like men do it more than women? Lili Bekele, welcome to the show. And I know I'm not getting your name right. I know there's a click in there.
1: Lili Bekele. (laughs) Bekele.
0: And you originally are from Ethiopia, raised in a state. From someone who's been, you know, in a very diverse country, the United States, and you've also lived in Kenya, how would you define the African culture from your own experiences?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. It's, It's not an easy one, I have to say, as I've been reflecting on that question. You know, Africa is so dynamic from east to west, 54, 55, depending on who you ask, uh, countries, unique, unique cultures and people groups. But I do think there is something distinctive about visiting any African culture or any country that makes it different than going to a European country. I think a lot of that is in the hospitality and the warmth of the reception. I think particularly hospitality is emphasized throughout our culture's I think there is a great emphasis on family and the family unit as being the bedrock of society, of culture itself, of communities. You know, I think we really emphasize and appreciate the family unit and, and also define family quite broadly and are inclusive in that definition. Um, and I think beyond that, beyond hospitality and family, then the nuance starts to come in. I think you'll find strong expressions in the arts, music, art you know visual arts uh, uh, all kinds of artistic expression that is quite strong throughout the continent but it really is hard to pinpoint an african culture that said growing up in the us when i would meet africans from different countries who were in the diaspora there was a shared recognition of home you know there was this camaraderie and almost an immediate sense of belonging with those individuals that i did not automatically have with necessarily Americans that I would meet, and certainly not with other people from other places. Um, And I think there's something to pay attention to there that is really quite beautiful about being from the continent. Some of that is being Black in America, and so you would have that shared experience. Other parts of that's being an immigrant in America and having that shared experience. But I think much of it is being able to laugh and commiserate about the shared experience of being an African abroad, and and what that meant to your identity, and how are you finding your way, and how are you staying rooted and connected to your home identity, all the while trying to find your way in the U.S. Um, so I have to say, I think I'm still thinking through that question. You know, is there a shared African culture? And I, I don't think I have the answers yet, but it's something that I am starting to understand. For me personally, there are some strong ties there that are shared from coast to coast. You know, I've had the great privilege of visiting in West Africa, to Senegal, to Ghana, to Mali. And they're, in those three countries at least, very, very unique expressions of culture, very different. Yet, I can say in each one of those places, I felt welcomed and received. I felt a sense of belonging there. And I think a lot of that is around the racial identity. I think a lot of that is around myself deciding before I went, this is a part of who I am as well. This part of the world also can belong to me in some way. And so part of it might be my own (laughs) willingness to appropriate culture and take it in. Appropriate, I hope, only in the most positive ways, in the sense that I wanted to take in everything that Senegal or Mali or Ghana had to offer me. So I went with that kind of an open-hearted expectation, and and I was met in kind.
0: You talked about how precious a family is to an African, and... Being an African as well, somehow we are held accountable to our family members. And sometimes your dreams have to go hand in hand with what your parents see, you know? Why do you think Africans value families that much?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I can only speak from my my experience, but I think much of, you know, what our initial, if we go back generations in our history you know, kingdoms and governments and societies were built on family units. So the way you gained both power and influence in a culture, the way that you had access to trade routes, the way that you spread your influence and, you know, whether that was through language and acquisition of, sadly, people groups or otherwise, was through that family unit. The bigger your family unit, the better and bigger and more powerful you could be. Um, But beyond that kind of uh, what I would say is maybe a less than positive uh, image of how family became to be important, I think beyond that there is just a deep ingrained, and I don't know what the roots of that is other than our cultures themselves. I don't want to necessarily give the credit to that to faith communities. I think that's part of it, but we know that some, some faith communities came later than others. But I think if we look now at Islam, if we look at Christianity, if we look at Even, you know, more of the local religions, animism and beyond. Well, maybe not animism, but the others. There is an emphasis on family there that we take very seriously. I think your wealth is your children. Um, I mean, I have four kids myself, and I just remember distinctly when I was in the U.S., pregnant with my fourth child, people were like, oh, gosh, really? Did you mean to have four kids? And I remember a graduate school professor at that time in particular being like, you're pregnant again, you know? On the flip, when I came to Ethiopia, when I was pregnant with my fourth child and visiting, people were like, you are the most blessed of all women. Wow, you're blessed. You're so lucky. And so it was a completely different narrative, just a completely different expression of what the value of children was. Like they were honored and treasured and appreciated um, in Ethiopia um, at that time. And and in the U.S., I felt like it was very much different. It was seen as an economic (laughs) barrier now to overcome as opposed to an addition to me. You know, a blessing to me, and so why we value family. I I definitely don't have a a clear understanding of that, but I can say in all of my experiences in traveling and being back here in East Africa for these last few years, I think that is something that's common through all of our ups and downs, and trials and challenges within our families. At the end of the day, we do go back to the family as what we need in order to make it in this world.
0: Yeah, family is sacred in in Africa, and I totally agree with you. Um, One thing I uh, I might ask is with the way the Westerns have totally influenced the African culture, do you still think, although we don't specifically know what is the shared African culture, but do you think we still have an African culture?
1: Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I do. I mean, I think you see that. So if if I think about my experience in the U.S., because my husband is American so we go to the u s. you know, about every summer, um, and when I meet people, both family, Ethiopians who are in the diaspora, or other Africans in the diaspora, there is a strong need to express our roots still. You know, there is no family gathering where some Ethiopian food dish doesn't end up on the table. You know, if we're doing brunch. With all of our waffles and our egg casseroles, there's also going to be firfir on the table. There's also going to be, you know, apsa on the table. We're going to still have our Ethiopian representation at the table. So our culture remains strong. I think we're seeing much more from younger generations this need to connect with their culture. They're creating, you know, t-shirt lines and they're creating other ways that they want to connect. I think we hear it in the music, you know, the rise of Afrobeats, you know, not just in the continent, worldwide. It was the fastest growing genre last year across Spotify. And so we see this need to hold on to the continent and to hold on to our roots, which I think is a beautiful and powerful thing. Here on the ground, I think we're just going on with life as usual, right? It's just business as usual. We're going on with our day-to-day. And I do think that there is, of course, it's undeniable the influence of China, the influence of the West. I mean, influences are influences, and that's not unique to Africa. You go to Europe, you see the influence of the U.S. in in the West, or in Europe, rather. You see the influence of U.S. and China and vice versa. I mean, Influences cross boundaries, and and you see the influence of, you know, Kenya in the U.S. You see the influence of Nigeria in the U.S. So the influences are shared and go across boundaries. I just think that here in, in the continent, we do have to be a little bit careful and guarded about what we filter into our thinking. Um, and I'll give you just a personal example. You know, my, my kids recently in the last couple of years have had, are been applying to colleges in the U.S., and the story I have told them growing up is that You know, my parents were poor when they were growing up. They didn't have, you know, basic needs met. They had a loving family, loving, loving family around them. But they didn't have, you know, shoes. They didn't have a proper bed, all those things until they were in their teenage years. And they worked hard to overcome that. They got to university age. The communist revolution happened. And because of the intervention of some Peace Corps volunteers, my dad in particular was able to, and my mom was able, were able to get uh, scholarships to the United States and pursue their higher education there because the Derek at the time was closing a lot of the universities. So the story my my children have heard is that had it not been for the United States, you know, our family would not have made it, perhaps, or that the U.S. gave us opportunities to pursue uh, education. So the U.S. did give us opportunities to pursue education. However, I think I've done them a disservice, because what I've somehow translated to them is that the U.S. saved us from a life in Africa, and that's never the story I meant to tell them. Um, And that's the influence I think that I need to guard against in the own narratives that I'm telling. Because what I really wanted to say is that, you know, my parents were talented, but the opportunities they needed to grow their talent because of that revolution were not available to them. And they took the opportunity to pursue that talent elsewhere. Um, And so we have to be careful about the narratives we're telling ourselves about our own stories, about what this continent offered us. Because if my parents had stayed in in Ethiopia and had found a way to pursue education or vocation of some sort, we would have been fine. Our family may not have had the same opportunities. It might have looked different, of course, but we would have been fine. We would have been an Ethiopian family with our own story and our own legacy to carry forward rather than what we are now, which is this kind of cross-racial family with multiple inputs. But I think that is what I, I want us to guard against. I think there's a way overemphasis on these things that we say the West is influencing us on, which I just don't think is true. Rather, what we need to be careful of is, is guarding our own stories and our understanding of self from what the West would tell us we are or could be.
0: I like when you talked about stories. Stories uh, are actually sometimes a, a true identity of you know who we actually are and sometimes in africa stories can be preserved through names and names have really in my opinion they have a very huge impact in africa most africans name mean something for sure and to be honest i don't know what my, <laughs> i don't know what my names mean but i do know that my last name nzuzi means twin. Wow. And I just recently had twins.
1: Congratulations. Thank
0: you. So names do have a huge impact in Africa, so to speak. But we do lose it. We've lost it completely. And your name has been changed 13 times according to what you said. (laughs) I've watched one of your clips on YouTube.
1: Yeah.
0: How much do you think... Our uh, names really mean to Africans through the diversity, through the generational changes and things?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to say, I'm a mother to twins also, so congratulations. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Thanks. It's a beautiful club to be a part of. Very difficult uh, one. Very. It's hard at the start, but it's so beautiful to hang in there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, names are powerful. I mean, the, the talk you're referring to is a talk I did at Datasphere about my name changing so many times. I think it was seven times, maybe not 13. But, um, you know, I in, when my parents immigrated to the United States, at that time, the big emphasis was on assimilation, you know, just fit in, fit in, fit in. Don't speak to your children in your mother tongue, only speak English, give them a name that's easy. In Ethiopian culture, in fact, you know, you don't take your husband's name when you get married. You keep your father's name. It's patriarchal still, but, you know, you keep your father's name. You know, the emphasis there was, no, 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 you guys need to, because my mom had her, her last name, my dad had his, and we had ours as kids. We had three different last names. And they were like, no, 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 you need, all need the same last name. Um, and so there was a conundrum. What do we do? Do we keep our tradition? Do we keep our culture? Do we do we assimilate? And, you know, really in the U.S. at the time, it was primarily a legal question because we had to be registered and get to get benefits, social security, all of that. Um so names are powerful. Um, when when we were having our own kids, my husband and I talked about it, at the time, we thought we'd be staying mostly in the US. So we we're like, okay, what's a name that means something to us, but that can represent who we are in both cultures. And so not a lot of names could cross both Black American culture, which is what my husband is, Black American and Ethiopian culture. So we ended up going kind of biblical names because we we're both people of faith. Um, and, and it worked, but then now we've been back on the continent and I'm like, gosh, I wish we would kind of given them more Ethiopian names, honestly, biblical still, but with more of an Ethiopian flair, because for me, that's the marker of somebody knowing who I am, is through my name. Um, My husband's, my married name is Piper, but I I don't go by Lily Piper, because that would erase completely thousands of years of history and my entire people. I'm Lily Bakada, because that is who I am. That is my people, you know, and I use Piper as well. But for me, I can never let go of the Bakada, because that is, the the identity for somebody who's flipping through a phone book, or we don't use phone books anymore, so (laughs) somebody going through social media, when they see Bakala, they're like, oh, okay, this woman is Habesha, this woman is from Ethiopia, and that's really important to me. I think names are a signal to society of, of your roots, of your heritage. My daughter is now in university, and for her, it's important that she can find other Ethiopians, right, or other Africans to connect with because of that shared culture, like we were talking about a moment ago, that shared history, and It's not everything. It's not the end-all to be-all to have a name that's identifiably Kenyan or identifiably Ethiopian. But I think it's important and I think it's really valuable. And I wish as I reflect a little bit more that, you know, maybe we could have given our kids names that were a little bit more distinctively rooted in our Ethiopian culture. Because they're going to carry that their whole lives. And if nothing else, your name reminds you, I think, of who you are. And I think remembering who you are in this world that's constantly pushing you to be whatever the latest trend is or whatever the latest, you know, movement is, is really important. Um, And I think our names are part of our roots.
0: You say that in Ethiopia, uh, based on your culture, women don't usually take the husband's last name. And which is very unique. I've actually, I've never heard that. In Africa, most women are expected to get the, the husband's last name. Do you think that women somehow lose something through doing that?
1: Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, the taking of your husband's name is simply a a matter of taking property. That's the origin of that principle, that husbands have now a wife who they have now basically registered as property legally, so they take their name. Same with the children, same with in in the U.S., in the history of the U.S., it's part of the way people were enslaved. They also took the name of the master. So it's absolutely, for me, a loss when you do that. People choose to do it because they want to have an identifiable family unit. But for me, the question is, well, wasn't I a family before? Didn't I belong to a unit before? Obviously, it's women's choice. I think at the end of the day, women need to be able to choose what they want to do with their name, with their body, with their lives. I mean, we need to restore women fully to their the rightful autonomy, God-given autonomy that they have. And I couldn't believe—I believe that so, so, stro- so strongly— Um, I think in Africa, the the taking of names is also a colonial legacy. It's not something that was a part of our ancestral DNA. So uh, in Ethiopia, like I said, it's still patriarchal because you're taking your father's name. But at least it's an identifiable, like, this is the marker of my family. So, you know, for my dad, for example, he's Solomon Bakala. His dad was Bakala Haile. Haile, you know, it goes back. So you can trace your ancestry that way. It's the son of Bakala, the son of Haile, and so on and so forth. And so... um, yeah, for me we we do lose. We've lost so much uh, as women in this culture. We're still losing so much. So retaining our name is is a small small token of kind of holding on to power.
0: What what have women lost?
1: Oh, literally everything. I mean, pay, economic power, power and influence in government. Um, autonomy, bodily autonomy, legal movement. I mean, there are so many things that women have lost and are fighting hard to hold on to in some places and hard to fighting hard to have for the first time in many other places. Um, you know, FGM is still an issue throughout this part of the world. Women are still being cut. Women are still being sold into marriage at Age 12 and 13, women are still being abused. The domestic violence rates in Kenya in particular are alarming. They are through the roof. Women are not safe in Africa or in many African countries. Um, Women have lost a lot. And so we have a lot of work to do as a society. Um, And I will speak more specific. I shouldn't have even said really uh, in Africa because that's not a fair statement. I will just speak to what I know, Kenya, Ethiopia, the United States— In all of those three countries, we have a lot of work to do to ensure that women have human rights, uh, much less equity, where, where we have a long way to go.
0: Do you think that women and men need equity or equality?
1: You know, I think it's important to understand the definition of those two words, right? Equality is everybody gets the same thing. I have an apple, you have an apple. I have two oranges, you have two oranges. But equity means getting what I need in order to succeed at the same rate as you. So if I am vitamin C deficient and that vitamin C is going to help me perform in the classroom as well as you, um, Celio, that means I need two oranges while you only need one because I need the vitamin C that those two oranges allow me. Is that the equal amount of oranges? No. It is, is it an equitable amount because it allows me to catch up on my deficiency and perform at the same rate as you? Yes. So in in some ways, we need the same, right? In many places, if it comes to land rights, if it comes to access to education, we need equality. I need to enroll my daughters in school at the same places, at the same rate of success as you. When it comes to economic opportunities, I might need equity. Women might need better loans, lower interest rates, more aggressively than men in order to catch up on the economic deficits that we have suffered for generations. So we need both, really, and it really depends on what sphere you're in. Is to know which one to apply.
0: Many people always say that women need equality, and I've always said I don't think it's a hundred percent sure because, in, in my opinion, I think we need equity more. Comparing, but uh, to equality. But as you said, it it depends on the scenario too. And you also mentioned that women have lost so many things, but by saying losing means that they had something, sure. right? But what is it that they had, according to you, has been lost through the years?
1: Yeah, and, and so it, I, I wish I, I should be more specific so that the answers are actually relevant and and useful to to listeners. I think on the one hand there are some things we've never had, so if you've never had it, it's you can't really lose it. But we use the term lost because I think it's more understandable in some ways. If we look at a lot of our societies, I recently talked to Samba Yonga. She's the founder of the Women's History Museum of Zambia. And she talks about how in Zambian culture, pre-colonizers, women were in leadership positions all across the country. They ruled kingdoms. They ruled over land. They had authority. It was the colonial influence that subjugated women to inferior roles, that took away their power of voting, that took away their power of land ownership, that took away their power of governance. So there has been a loss and a gaining and a cyclical way throughout the countries, and it really depends on where you are as to whether or not you need to have those rights for the first time or regain them, you know, in the case of Zambia, for example. Um, So it really depends. I can just look at, uh, similarly, in Ethiopia, you know, women over time have held places of power and have had places of influence. Where are they missing? Well, one obvious place is they're missing out of places of authority and influence in the church. Uh, be it the Evangelical Church or the Orthodox Church. They are not there where they should be in many places of influence. Um, so we could, it's it's such a broad and, and challenging question you've asked. It would need really time and care, I think, to give it a well-rounded answer. But I think in any place that you look, faith, business, education, health, entertainment, arts, women are in a place where they are very much still fighting to have their voices heard validated, and then on top of that, being a place where they are now decision-makers.
0: I do have to say something, and I know you're a woman of faith. I also am, but I, I sometimes see things a bit differently. You said colonialism has subjugated women to a, uh, a place of you know, inferiority and things. And the colonials or colonialism, they were believers. Most of them were Christians. Do you think that Christianity has a place, or religion, let's just say religion, do you think that religion has a place in the way women are being seen or treated in today's world?
1: I I don't even think it's a controversial question. I think 100% Christianity has subjugated and oppressed women. Christianity as an institution, Christianity as a religious body, as an organized group of people, have been some of the worst perpetrators of violence across history. I think that's documented and well understood as a part of historical fact. We don't, we don't have to debate it, right? It's, the evidence is there from the Crusades to colonialism to in the whole slave trade, right, in the U.S. I mean, from the beginning of time, Christianity sadly has gone hand in hand with the violence against people groups, minorities, black people, women, period, full stop, end of story. For me, the, the dividing line is that Jesus— was the greatest liberator of women for me. When I read the Gospels and I see the way that Jesus touched women, sat with women, conversed with women, they were the first witnesses of his resurrection, he elevated the status of women more than any other historical figure of his time and generation ever did.
0: How did he do so?
1: Through his relationship with women. Everything he did with women that's documented in the Gospels was completely illegal under Jewish and Roman law. you were not allowed to converse with women, In private areas, you're not allowed to touch them or allow them to touch you. You're not allowed to elevate them to positions of influence. Um, Simply the fact that it's recorded that they were, again, we just celebrated Easter, right? They were the first witnesses of his resurrection at his tomb, and the angel appeared to them. And then that was recorded and put forward as fact. Um, That would have never happened and has not happened in other historical texts of that time because women had no place of influence could not, you know, be witnesses in a court of law or elsewhere. So for me, Jesus was the greatest humanizer and restorer of dignity for women. But I think the church as an institution has twisted and corrupted his words and the words of the gospels to use it as a weapon of violence. And I think that's one of the greatest tragedies of history. And I and I can't elevate myself beyond Uh, those individuals who have been perpetrators of violence because I know my own flawed (laughs) mechanisms in myself. You know, if I'm truly a follower of faith then I'll say, you know, there, but by the grace of God, go I, you know, I, my own ways, there's way more I can do to elevate women. Myself as a woman, there's way more I can do to alleviate poverty myself. If I believe what I say, I believe then I too, you know, can be doing much more and I too need God's grace. But as an institution, absolutely. The church has failed women. And at the same time, I think, you know, it is Jesus himself who was the greatest redeemer. And I think the the people who have radically fought for human rights and given their lives were people of faith as well because they truly took Jesus' words to heart and they died for those beliefs and were murdered for those beliefs.
0: You talked about uh, the civil rights leaders. Most of them were religious people, just like you said. And we've seen my favorite Maybe this is very obvious. So leader is Martin Luther King. I think that man was was just something else. Mm-hmm. But how much of his work do reflect in in Africa today?
1: So much of his work. I mean, one of the stories that I really appreciate about my parents of telling us is that when he was shot and killed, they heard the news in Ethiopia and they they wept. They were moved by that because you have to remember, Dr. King died. I think it's 1968 at the height of the, also the independence movement across the continent. So Tom Mboya, one of Kenya's great statesmen, was invited to the United States to raise funds for the flights that the, he was conducting in Kenya, because there was no tertiary education right in Kenya at, in the 60s. Kenyans, by law, of British colonial law, could not pursue a higher education. So Tom Mboya and other courageous individuals raised money to help airlift them to the United States. And among those people who were airlifted were Barack Obama Sr., Wangari Mathai, some of the you know, greatest thinkers of that generation. And Dr. King invited Mboya to come and speak at the Southern Leadership Students' Convention to raise m- funds for this uh, airlift. Um, he was re- uh, Ralph Abernathy was one of his hosts on that trip. Um, Jackie Robinson, the great American baseball player. Um, there are so many ties between the civil rights movement and the independence movement across this continent that sadly is not appreciated as much as it should be. But they went hand in hand. The struggle for freedom is always bound together across the world wherever you go. You know, whether it was Gandhi influencing Dr. King or Dr. King influencing Mboya, these, these great thinkers and great revolutionaries were really reading from the same text, which is, my liberation is bound up in your liberation. If one is free, all are free. And it's really quite an astonishing thing when you read historical texts together and see how much each freedom movement was intertwined with the next.
0: And what freedom teaches us is that everyone should be treated equally. And again, to go back to the woman thing, we talked about how we both believe that it's just not equality that matters but in africa we still believe that a woman should stay at home
1: do we believe that
0: okay some people believe mm-hmm. this way and it's radically changing so if most people believe so it means that women have a certain limitation you know on what they actually can or can do which could also include university so how what would your take be on changing that perception, you know, in African minds to help women further their education too.
1: Yeah, for me, the only thing we can do is each family has to do, I mean, I, I would like to think that we could show data points to people and demonstrate how when women complete tertiary education or secondary education, the whole family benefits, the whole community benefits, you know, there's that saying that rising waters lifts all boats. And it's true. When a woman rises, she takes people with her. That's just shown over and over and over again in the data. If I have a successful business, I'm not the only one who benefits. My my neighbor benefits. My children benefit. Probably my neighbor's children also benefit because there's this shared benefit of women succeeding. But beyond that, all I can do, honestly, is raise my own children to be radical change makers. That's my job, I feel like, is for me and my husband to raise Feminist sons, feminist daughters, change makers, thinkers who will challenge every form of oppression that they meet, whether that's homophobia, whether that's misogyny, whether that's sexism or racism, that they will absolutely go forward and shatter every barrier they can with their own black excellence, as well as their own, you know, refusal to allow anyone's human rights to be violated. That's what I feel like my biggest contribution can be is to raise my four children to be weapons against those barriers for women or men or queer people or disabled people, wherever they may find them. I feel like that's my my greatest challenge and my greatest privilege.
0: You talked about showing data, you know, proving, not proving, but showing how when a woman makes it in life, she takes care of, you know, the entire family or the people around her. But what does it seem like Men do it more than women. Is it because most men are more successful than men? To be honest
1: with you, I don't know the answer to that question. I think we all know, for example, in Kenya, that the informal economy is the backbone of this country, right? You and I may go to work in a building every day, in an office with a suit or formal wear, but we know that it's the mamas on the corner selling vegetables and the hustler selling water, and all those other informal jobs that really keep this economy going. And when we experience things like power cuts, or when there's an election and things are disrupted, it is that informal sector that makes sure that things can still run, right? Because they don't need us in the offices at those moments. But we all still need water, we all still need vegetables. And so I don't have the data on why men are perceived as to be doing more. But I do know that oftentimes what we it's what we don't see that is actually the most critical services that we need for a country to, to succeed. And I think that's evidence every day. When we drive on roads that are not paved well, if infrastructure is not there, we all feel it. And for me, women are the infrastructure that every country needs to to succeed. I mean, we are half the world's population. So you cannot oppress and marginalize half the world's population and expect any society to thrive in any sector, from education to the arts. You cannot succeed with one arm tied behind your back.
0: That's true. And I agree with you. Before we end this episode, I want to ask you one more question. What is, as a woman, an African woman, what is a woman's superpower?
1: So a great question. I think our superpower is probably other women. I think we are really amazing about building relationships. I think we're really incredible about connecting with other women, seeking out our tribe, seeking out our sisters, being in each other's corner, rallying for one another, supporting one another. I think at every critical juncture of my life, my closest women friends have been there. The birth of my children, the launch of my podcast, salam and hello, everybody, please follow and subscribe. Um, You know, my graduate school education, watching my children. It's been my sisters, my friends who have shown up for me and over and over again, you know, they're, they're my superpower.
0: This could be a joke. I don't know. It depends on how you get it in, in French, because I, I speak French. There's a saying, uh, I, w- I would, I just translate it. It says that a woman cannot build a house. Why? Because it will never agree on which stone to lay first. <laughs> and when, 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 when you say that women are great, you know, in building relationship and, you know, connecting with, with other women don't you think that historic, historically speaking, it's not really the case?
1: No, I, I don't think at all. I mean, if you're asking me if I agree with the, the proverb you're just saying about not knowing which stone to, to lay first, I would definitely disagree. Um, I think, we, of course, women are uniquely talented and gifted just as men are. Of course, women are uniquely opinionated just like men are. Um, so I don't think any of that is, is unique to a gender at all. I will just say from my lived experience of my precious 46 years on this earth, it has been other women. And now the blessing of my daughters who are growing up into young women who have been my greatest champions and supporters. Um, You know, those are the ones who pray with me, walk with me, celebrate with me. Um, And yeah, that I really couldn't live without.
0: Lily, thanks for coming to the show.
1: Asante sana. I
0: deeply appreciate it.